Okay, cut this. This is not our cold opening. Future me, do not, don't you dare put this in the intro. My name is Brandon King. This is 1-800-RU-SLAPPIN. Thank you so much for calling and or listening to our show. This is the music podcast. We are music nerds. We like dissecting albums every week, every two weeks. We're, we're not very good with schedules. Once again, my name is Brandon King, and I am joined by the mastermind of this peer podcast, Rachel Fisher. Rachel, how are you doing? I'm feeling a lot better. My ego's a lot better now that you called me the mastermind. I needed that today. If you guys missed our first episode, we talked about uh, American Idiot by Green Day, their 2004 sort of rock opera. Today, we're taking a bit of a 180 turn. Uh, we're talking about 1989's Paul's Boutique by Beastie Boys, or The Beastie Boys. I've never heard an official confirmation on the The. It's Beastie Boys. I, I'm really sorry. I'm going to be that person because this is my favorite band. I'm going to be that person who's like, actually, it's this, and I try not to be. This band is very special, just for reference, because I hear this a lot. It's pronounced Yauk, not Yauk. I've never heard anyone say Yauk. I've heard a couple people say Yauk, and every time I hear it, I cringe, and I'm like, that's very dumb to be upset about, but I'm still like, he says it a lot in the songs. I've heard, you know, Sade being called Sade for years, and I've kind of cringed every time I've heard that, just like, no. I share a birthday with Sade. That's all I know about her. Do you really? I do. That's, I don't think she's the most famous person I share a birthday with. Uh, I think that person is John Carpenter, horror movie director extraordinaire. I actually share mine with James Cameron, so we both share with uh, directors. Ta-da! Fun tidbit about us. Uh, anyways, yeah, so we're talking Beastie Boys today, Paul's Boutique, you know, all of the samples, and yes, all of the samples. Uh, Rachel, give the people a little background on Beastie Boys for those who might not be super familiar. All right, so I'm going to give the background uh, on Beastie Boys a little bit more around this time because we're planning on covering more of their albums, so I want to save that history around those periods for then. Paul's Boutique is their second album. It was released July 25th, 1989 on Capitol. This is their first album on Capitol, and they tended to stick with it the rest of their albums. It was produced by the Dust Brothers, who are Mike Simpson, a.k.a. Easy Mike, and John King, a.k.a. King Gizmo, and engineered by Mario Caldado Jr., a.k.a. Mario C. Mario C. is engineered and eventually produced many Beastie Boys albums. The Dust Brothers have also worked on Bex Odelay, Midnight Vultures, and Gero, as well as the Fight Club soundtrack and my personal favorite, Mbop by Hanson. Are, are we going to um, slap it on Mbop now? Just that song? <laughs> yes, just, we're going to make, a, we're gonna a make deep, an exception. A deep, deep dive into Mbop. Yes. I would love to, but that kind of goes against the principles of this podcast, which is albums. But Damn. maybe we can do a special episode about singles by boy bands. Future me, make a note of that. Future me. We're also going to talk about girl groups. I gotta. All right. So this was the first DC Boys albums where they worked with Mario C. They tend to work with him for the rest of the 80s, which isn't that much because this is the middle of 1989. But they worked with him up until the 90s. I think up until they moved back to New York. Because at this point, they're in California on the West Coast. But this is their first album working with Mario C. 
And this is also around the time when their keyboardist Mark Nishida, aka Keyboard Money Mark, comes into play. He doesn't play on this album because this album is still mostly about rapping samples. He comes into their circle at this time, and you can hear a lot more of his work on their next album, which is 1992's Check Your Head, which is more of an instrumental rather than rap and sampling album. Um, so you may have noticed, I said this is the first Beastie Boys album on Capitol Records, and the reason that it's on Capitol and not their original label, Def Jam, which is started by Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, is that they had a falling out with the two of them. Uh, this is mostly over money. The Beastie Boys thought they weren't getting paid the amount of money they showed after touring for about a year and a half, two years, roughly, give or take. And they were very tired, and they felt very overworked and overwhelmed and just very stressed out about who they were once they really saw the impact that their their first album, Licensed Ill, had on how people viewed them and how they were treated. Simmons and Ruben were just like, well, you've spent a lot of money doing, at this point, we would consider it pretty awful things. And they were like, well, we're also going to use that to help fund other acts on Def Jam. We need the money that you guys have made because you're a success so far, along with Run DMC. And we need the money you make so we can help support other artists. Um, they didn't like that. And the second reason that they parted ways with Ruben Simmons and Def Jam was, uh, like I said, they toured for about a year and a half or two years. And they were very worn out and they were tired and they're just like, we want a break. And Ruben and Simmons are both like, well, no, you just got a tour. It's time for you to do your second album. Why didn't you, don't you have any songs ready? And they were like, no, we've been partying and, and working every single night, pretty much. Like, when will we have time to make another album? So they parted wits. I think at this point, I know definitely with Rick Rubin that there's not hard feelings left, or at least they're good enough about not publicly showing hard feelings. I don't know about the relationship with Russell Simmons. Um, but they moved to Capitol. Because at the end of that tour, they were all like, I don't want to see you anymore. I'm really sick of this. I'm sick of everything that this name means. I want to do my own thing. So Adam Horowitz, also known as Ad Rock, he moved to California, and he actually started doing acting, something that came out around the time that Paul's Boutique came out, as in the same year, 1989, was his first movie. It's called Lost Angels. And if you want to see a very cheesy, sad, gooey 80s movie, where Ad-Rock says very cheesy, gooey things. Please watch Lost Angels. Adam Yoke, aka MCA, actually formed a band that was actually playing instruments at this time. This wasn't rap, this was a punk, a rock band uh, called Brooklyn, which there's a couple recordings floating around. You might find some similarities between Brooklyn and then later Beastie Boys work more on the instrumental and instrument playing side. Um, I don't know what Mike D was doing at this time. No one ever talks about him. He was just there. But um, they eventually all make it out to California. And they're like, well, look, you're my best friends. I want to be in a band with you. I want to keep doing this, but we have to do things differently. Um, so then they go and get signed out of Capitol. They meet up with the Dust Brothers. They meet up with Mario C. They meet up with Keyboard Money Mark. And they create Paul's Boutique. If we look at it from earning money and making sales, that point of view, it's a flop. Pretty much no one bought it because half of the people are expecting, oh, this is a license to ill part two. It's going to be the same thing. The other half, like the other reason that it wasn't really as popularized as it is now is Capital was also putting out a Donny Osmond album at the same time. And they're like, well, we're going to put all of our time and efforts and money into promoting Donny Osmond. And you guys can try next time. It'll be fine. Like, don't worry about it. Um, 
Bad move retrospect. But this album has gained a cult classic following in the years since. And now a lot of people, if you mention Beastie Boys, if if they know slightly more than Licensed Ill, they'll say, oh, Paul's Boutique, that's my favorite album. You mentioned the critical acclaim. Literally everyone from Public Enemies Chuck D to Miles Davis, and they are all talking about Paul's Boutique between the sampling, between the shift in approach, between the label mismanagement that you were talking about, and for a group at that time, who essentially is all about just, you know, raucous nonsense to take an approach like this, it, it psyched a lot of people out. Let me clarify by saying, and this is very biased of me because it's my favorite band, I don't think they've had a bad album. I think they've had albums that you listen to and you go, oh, I know exactly around what time period they recorded this. License Sale is definitely one of them. If you listen to that, it's very mid-80s, kind of with the attitudes, lyrical content, um, especially comparing the beliefs and attitudes of Beastie Boys from then till, if you look at, say, 1998's Hello Nasty or 2004's To the Five Boroughs, like, you just see this big change in how they acted, which also comes with growing up, because when they started out, they were in their, because they started originally as hardcore bands when they were young teenagers and about middle-aged teenagers, but License Hill didn't really come out until they were like 19, 20, 21, 22. Right. So, they were a band for almost half a decade up to that point. At that point, but it was in a completely different genre. It's a completely different situation. I mean, you compare that to they were the big fish in the small pond. I think they say in uh, the movie that came out, Beastie Boys Story, they were like, we were famous in a 14-block radius, and now we're world-renowned in a split second of time, basically. Especially if you're in your late teens, early 20s. That's such a big deal, and it kind of explains their attitudes at the time. But it, but it's also socially, that's what some of the attitudes were. I'm not saying that as an excuse for them, but I'm saying that as, like, it makes sense. And I'll go into that a little bit more when we talk about License to Ill, because I feel like that's a bit more of an appropriate place to talk about that, because it's their sophomore achievement. Even in those three or so years, even in that time period, when they finished the tour and they're like, I'm sick of acting like party boy, um, there's some maturity that's happening. Not too much, if you listen to some of the lyrics on this album. Not too much, but it's a little better. That is kind of the weird thing about Paul's Boutique in that it is so futuristic and so ahead of its time in some regards, and yet it is also so much a product of the late 80s, early 90s in other regards. And so speaking actually of their time in the hardcore scene in their early days, I think it's a good time to bring us to the album art. So like I was saying, the cover art in the gatefold, which if you actually open it up, it, um, it looks like a view of a street, but that is a photograph of Ludlow Street, and that's as shot from 99 Rivington Street. And it's funny because the photo credits for this is credited to Adam Yauch's cousin uncle, director Nathaniel Hornblower. But in actuality, it is shot by photographer Jeremy Chaton. And you'll notice it's a trend with Beastie Boys when you look at people who uh, are part of their touring crew or not so much managers. They don't, they're one of the bands that don't really talk about the manager side of things as much. Like... It's not like Rush with Ray Daniels or the Beatles with Brian Epstein. So you don't really hear about their manager that much. But if you look at any of their uh, visual crew, you're going to see a lot of the same names. And usually you're going to be like, okay, well, they were in the band together or they grew up together and now they do this. Uh, BC Boys really like to have their own little in circle of friends and people who are they're just like, oh, well, I know a guy who does that. Bring him in. He's going to be a friend of ours now. Uh, and we talked a little bit earlier about how Paul's Boutique was commercially unsuccessful. 
because it had a lot of experimental intense sampling and lyricism, especially compared to License Sale. Where License Sale, I like to like it too. If you just made that album an instrumental album, you could probably use that in a lot of movies, but the second you hear the lyrics, you're like, oh, no one wants to use this in an action movie if the lyrics are talking about, I don't want to get my hair cut, or like, I'm skipping school. Whereas Paul's Boutique, there's a lot more you can play around with because it's less of those late teens, early 20s, high school, college themes and more of the, I'm an adult on my own. I'm living somewhere new, really, for the first time. I've had my taste of fame. I don't really know how I like it. I have to go live with myself now. We also talked about how there's a lot of sampling. This is uh, an album that's very famous and renowned for its sampling. It's also renowned for a lot of the clearing that they have to do. So many lawsuits and a lot of it, um, which we can talk about probably when we cover Hot Sauce Committee Part 2, because that's a bit more of an appropriate time to talk about these, because they just didn't want their stuff to be used commercially. On that last track... I was going to say, ah, yes, the infamous B-Boy Suite. That's if you have the regular version. I don't know about you, I didn't listen to the one that has, like, B-sides and extras, because... It can get to be like a lot of just straight through listening and taking notes. So I try to do just the regular, if you bought this in 1989, these are the songs you would hear. And you'll see them in 70s women's clothing a lot around this time period. And it brings me so much joy to see the macrame owl necklaces, the big white fluffy hats, the lime green pantsuits, the big 70s wedge heels. If you read their book, BC Boys Book, they talk about going to Dolly Parton's birthday party around this time. And they're like, we're going to dress up in 70s clothes. And Ad-Rock and MCA left they went to do errands they're like we're not gonna do that but we're not gonna tell mike so mike shows up and he's in a lime green pantsuit with a big white furry hat and there's pictures of this and it makes me so happy every time i see it he looks so happy in this outfit and it's it's kind of horrifying go google mike d lime green pantsuit and your day will turn around because you'll be like at least i'm not wearing that okay yes i i can confirm having seen the lime green pantsuit <laughs> They are glorious, and I love them. What are your thoughts on the cover art as a whole? It's fine. <laughs> Not to be like that, but um, I don't know. I've never really, I've a lot of Beastie Boys album art I'm not thrilled with necessarily. Like, I think their best one, and this is just my opinion, I think their best one was Hello Nasty, just because that's it's a bright yellow one with a big sardine can on it like it's very memorable whereas this one i feel like is less memorable but something i do like about it is that beastie boys is the name is not on the front of the album cover but right. what's on the front is this sign that says paul's boutique and i really like how it's, you get the title it's very blended into the surroundings i think that's a good touch because that's that feels like a very 70s folk artist thing to do it does. I, I could see this being either, you know, a Bob Dylan or a Joni Mitchell or like a Jim Croce photo and being like, yep, I could see it. Or it could be James Taylor. Yes. There's a lot of James Taylor vibes to it. So I don't think it's a bad album cover. It's just, I feel like for whatever reason, Beastie Boy album covers, for the most part, just don't grab me. I would contend that this is actually a perfect cover for this album if I make it, you know, pretentious as hell for a second. Because Do it. Because if you look at the License to Ill cover, it's very much, you know, like the sleek jet plane. Macho 80s. It's it makes me think of Top Gun. Yes, it, it is macho 80s aesthetic. Paul's Boutique, on the other hand, is, it's not, you know, an amazing just photo. I mean, credit to Jeremy Shotton, of course. Like, it, it's a great photograph for what it is. But 
what I like about it is that the boutique almost, and again, this is where the pretentiousness comes in, and I apologize, but it almost comes into play as like the boutique is like, you know, this collection of weird oddities and backwards CDs and like that, just everything coming together in this. And that's kind of what Paul's boutique is. It's this collection of just insane samples from everything before 1989 jammed into this thing with a Beastie Boys skin on it. And I kind of like it in that regard. But you're right, like it does feel like a thrift shop. Like a little tucked away thrift shop. I mean, because License to Ill was very much, you know, it was. It was bridging the gap between, you know, hip hop and punk and what was the beginning of alternative rock at that point, which is what the Beastie Boys were. Oh, it's, it's that 70s big stadium rock music too, because they, they were influenced by Led Zeppelin. For the album, a little bit, uh, mostly for the touring behavior, which, again, we'll talk about once we get to that album. <laughs> right, but I think part of that point is why I think Paul's Boutique has caught on so much with not just hip-hop, but also EDM and New Soul and genres that are very much built on experimentation and piecemeal songwriting, things like that. You know, you can look at those genres down the line and see a trail leading back to Paul's Boutique as to where the Dust Brothers production was taking them. And I will say, this is slightly related to that, very tangentially. And they've said this themselves, that even though it's recorded in LA, it feels like a New York album. And yes. it feels like a New York album to me. Um, I will say for my, my personal background, my entire family is East Coast. It makes me think of New York, like at that point where you're going from summer to fall. Like it's starting to get to that point where it transitions from like the summer of, oh, again, we're young and we're going to do whatever we want to fall. Like, okay, well now we have to grow up a bit more. And I think that's something that I just really like about them, of the like, they're willing, because they could have just been, uh, I'm really sorry to call this out, this is your favorite band. My brother's favorite band of all time is ACDC. I have listened to so much ACDC, particularly very early in the morning on the way to high school. I think I'm con- I've listened enough that I'm confident enough to say ACDC knows their exact formula of how to make record sales and sell at concerts. And that's not a bad thing. I don't personally enjoy that because I like seeing experimental stuff. I like seeing what artists and groups like to do. And I think that's part of what appeals to me more about this album. That's all I have to say on background stuff. I think, that's more, we, I think that's more than enough. We can absolutely move on. <laughs> I think we've done way more than enough. <laughs> but this is my favorite band. I got a lot to say on them. All right, we can talk about some of the songs. I'll let you leave. So, there's a lot of horny lyrics on this album. You should see my notes because so many of the bullet points are just like horny. Oh, one thing I want to bring up, and I knew they had this, I didn't know which song it was, and I was like, oh, thank God I have earbuds in. So in the song High Plains Drifter, you can hear this towards the middle, uh, they sampled porn. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know for sure if it was, but I, I had it. <laughs> so they sampled porn. God forbid you put this album on with like your mom in the car and that comes on yeah maybe don't do that the next song is science i have a note that just says in all caps horny um and i have examples i think the most not to sound like tipper gore because re- really sexuality is your sexuality you do what you can as long as it's like not invalidating other people or make them uncomfortable coming on a sleeping woman's face you're talking about the verse two line yep yeah <laughs> Context, I haven't heard Paul's Boutique in like six or seven years, so this is my first re-listen to it. I like Sound of Science, I do. It's a mess of a song, but I like it for the mess it is. But I listened to that line and I had to take off my headphones for a second. <laughs> it's so fun. like It's just so funny to me at this point. But like, that's very much a what the f- 
there's a lot of lyrics like that. Um, and you hear that a little bit later on. I haven't fully listened to Check Your Head, so I can't say, like, oh, it's continued on that. Like I said, number one guilty offender, Mike D, Too Horny to Live. Because <laughs> he continues this throughout many of their albums. He was married for a lot of it, too. And I, I just imagine his wife was just like, oh, you're doing that again. Thanks. It's also a lyric that comes up, Sounds of Science, and also Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun, Waxing and Milking, Hey. Hey, we don't have to talk about what that actually means, but I think if you think about it. Three minute rule. Mike D's horny, guys. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going through all of these because I wrote it down a lot. Car thief. There is a lyric I say every day in my head because there's someone I work with who their last name is the same name as this person this is referencing, so it always plays in my head. It's Homeboy throwing the Towel, Your Girl Got Dicked by Ricky Fowl. Oh. Every time I see this person's name, it plays in my head and I go, damn it. I really like that line, actually. It's funny. There's also a lot of, like, the, the theme of, like, being a tough guy, which is very yeah. funny because I don't know about you. Um, I look at the Beastie Boys, particularly at that time, and I go, these three are big dorks. They're not cool. They really like, are. Like, they don't look tough. <laughs> but they also kind of know it. That's the thing. Like, they mentioned, they're like, we tried really hard to look like we were cool. They actually ran license to ill. They were considering kicking Mike D out because like, oh, he's not cool enough to be with us. Sure. Okay. That's what you want to say it. Sure, Ad-Rock. Your name is Ad-Rock. Do you want to, you know what his, his tag was when he did graffiti back in the day was? No, I, what is it? Slop. <laughs> Basically, like, if you look at the, a lot of these songs, there are some songs that just stand out specifically as like, oh, I can see why this was popular, I can see why it's single. A lot of the running themes are, I'm a really tough guy, I love women, I do drugs, I party. So ultimately, I think the ma- the big major themes, it's not that much difference from Licensed Ill, they're just, they try to be more clever about it. But I also think the reason why that works, because there is sort of, especially in the early Beastie Boys catalog, there is sort of this question of, you know, especially at that time, whether just like, Oh yeah, they're, like they're totally sincere. Like they're totally trying to, you know, be tough and exude that image of tough. Or are they at the opposite, just trying to, you know, poke fun at that and just being like, freaking ridiculous. We're not taking this seriously. To me, it all narrows down to their delivery. Maybe aside from MCA, but you cannot listen to Mike D and Ad Rock's delivery and say, yes, they're completely serious and completely embodying. But you can't because there is that element of just sort of like goofy wordplay. So, um, fun fact, I heard No Sleep Till Brooklyn on, I think it was Guitar Hero 3 back when I was like 10 or so, and I was like, wow, it sounds so tough and cool, wow, they're awesome, and I heard a year later, and I was like, these losers. <laughs> so when you're like 11 or 12, like, I don't know if you, if that was your impression, but like, I always was like, oh, they're clearly like joking, like, this is not something that they seriously do. I think there's elements of it that's very much like, well, yeah, we did this because I will say they were all potheads. I think I think Mike T and Adrock are still potheads. And around this time, MCA was was taking acid fairly frequently, but he eventually was like, no, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do drugs. I'm not going to smoke. None of that. They even admitted like they would have guys come and be like, oh, I smoke dust your albums all the time. And they're like, well, we didn't do that. Like, what's wrong with you? But I think that's a good conversation to have when we talk about license sale. Not not to sound like, you know, Jesus is just all right with me, that kind of person, but, like, you don't need to get high to have a good time. But I think I think the question of how much satire is satire and how much of it do we have to take seriously and hold people responsible for, I think that's a very good conversation for License to Ill, because we'll focus more on that, but I think it's also a good conversation for ill communication with the song Sure Shot. 
But those are the big themes, like we mentioned, because this was in the era of MTV played music videos. They have a handful of music videos. Uh, they had some with licensed ill. Those tend to be very goofy, very cool, which tries. It tends to be their style. If you watch the music videos, it's very much like we are having a fun, humorous time. Haha. <laughs> like they're very into like this needs to be good, but also needs to be funny. Uh, especially later on when they moved away from the licensed ill imaging and went more into like, I'm going to dress up as a Swiss mountaineer and put on an accent. I mean, it's a lot more appreciated. Licensed ill was just essentially, we're rappers in a hair metal video. That's, that's what it is. It was for a little bit. Now everyone thinks I smoke angel dust and I just am cruel to women. I'm very misogynistic. That's what they think. That's a good, that's a good cold open. Yes. Like, I mentioned the issue of just like, well, yeah, it, it's clearly satire because of their delivery. I mean, you can't listen to that kind of delivery and think that's completely serious. The mm-hmm. problem is, and I don't know how much you stand on this versus I do, mm-hmm. Easy Boys, for as clever as they can be, they're not the greatest lyricists in the world. They really are. Okay. And they're not. They're not. <laughs> well, I would argue MCA, because I did mention repeatedly, he was known as, he was the best rapper. He was a lot more natural at it. Our favorite Beastie Boy, apparently, Mike D, starved the show now. He brought up, like, Rick Rubin said to him, like, oh, MCA is really good at naturally doing rapping. You sound like you're working hard. I feel like it sounds more like... Mike and Adam were more comfortable with the punk rock hardcore scene. 1983, 1984, they would, um, with Kate Schellenbach, who was one of the original Beastie Boys. She's awesome. Currently, she's a producer for uh, James Corbin, the late night show. Really? Yeah. She's really cool. Kate Schellenbach is awesome. And if she's not your favorite Beastie Boy, then you're wrong. I um, need that on a shirt so badly right now. Shellbox, the best VC boy. I hope I get to meet Mike and Adam and just be like, hi, I really love you guys. You mean so much to me. You did great jobs to your lyrics. Kate's the best, and I hope you know that. Uh, honestly, at this point, they probably just turn to each other and be like, yeah, she, she probably was. She, she was. But so this is back in 83 and 84, and there's a fully recorded show of theirs, which is very adorable. They bring it up in BC Boy's story. But even then, you can see with MCA, he looked and sounded a lot more comfortable doing the rapping. I think there's a lot of lyrics in here that you go, really? But I think there's some strong ones, too. I was going to point out one of my favorite ones. Something that you'll notice that they do that's that's a trope of their songs is they like to do a lot of name dropping for themselves. Our, our, now, our now star of the podcast, Mike D, does this fairly frequently. <laughs> um, but my favorite is in Shake Your Rump, and it's a back-to-back from Mike to Adam, which is, well, I'm Mike D and I'm back from the dead, chilling at the beach down at Club Med. And then Adam goes, make another record because the people, they want more of this. Suckers that they be saying they can take out Adam Horowitz. I think just how they do it is so good. And I think it actually is just works very well. Do you have any lyrics that you think are good that aren't about horrifying potential sexual assault? I needed to, uh, I needed to bring, because I forgot which song it was on. It's That's okay. It, it's not nearly as deep as you. It was literally just a moment where I listened to it and went, yeah. And it's off of Eggman, which is ridiculous. I love Eggman. But also might also be about gang violence, so it might also be very darker than I'm picturing. <laughs> it's the line, what is it? Is this is the third verse? Yeah, so the first line of the third verse, where all three of them basically just go full punk and go, we all dressed in black, we snuck up around the back, we began to attack, the eggs did crack on Hayes' back. The line itself is not, it's basically just an audience chant moment. But the way they do it, 
oh, this is so hype, and I'm so hyped about Eggman for whatever reason. <laughs> One, I love Eggman so much because the entire song, for the most part, is just playing on words about eggs. It's not as dark as you think. So back in the day, because this is in the 70s and 80s, you were allowed to run around and do whatever because everyone was on coke and no one cared. So the Beastie Boys, particularly in the early phase of the career, they were really into egging. <laughs> obscenely into egging. They mentioned this a lot. It's very funny, actually. There was this bouncer to a club they wanted to go to. He wouldn't let them in. So they snuck around the back and just egged him. They love egging a lot. I think that's just built on the foundation of they'd been friends since they were young teens. And they spent most of their time together. Because when, when you're a young teen in the 70s or the 80s, and you're, you love music, and you go and see shit, and you live in New York City, so you can go and see whatever shows you want, you can go to the record stores you want, you can go start bands, because that's just, it feels almost expected in New York City that if you're an artistic kid, either you go do art stuff, or you go do music stuff, and this is the stuff that you do, where it's like, I feel like in England, you see, especially with, um, well, the 60s British Invasion was, oh, if you want to go in a band, you go to art school, whereas I feel like here in New York, it's like, oh, you want to go in a band and be friends with people? You go to shows. You hang around and do music things with them. But they had had that friend for so long. And even now, like, it's very funny now because there's just the dynamic of they just really annoy each other sometimes. But you can also tell there's such a deep foundation of friendship that you, like, you know, they're not really mad. Do you want to talk about samples? I don't want to spend too much time on it because we've already elongated a lot of time. But I, I just really want have. to ask you, do you have a favorite sample that you heard on this? or? Yes. Oh, I have it. A- I have a favorite sample. Um, this is at the very end of Hey Ladies. Um, and it kind of makes me sad because this is also my favorite part, and I feel a little bad about it because it's not something they actually did. This is something they took. Very end of Hey Ladies, there's this voice that goes, baby, 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 baby. And that's my favorite um, sample. That's the Roger Troutman sample, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's either the Roger Troutman or the P-Funk All-Stars. Forgive me. Uh, there's a YouTube channel. I don't know if you watch this for prep. Uh, Eight Minutes Upside Down. No. It's a uh, it's a hip-hop YouTube channel where they go in and they go through all the original stuff and see how it ties into all the songs. It's fascinating. It's like a half an hour long. It'll be like 10 seconds of, you know, uh-huh. Sgt. Pepper, and then it'll go into the track and show you how it is. As far as samples that I loved, I want to just point out two real quick. One for me is High Plains Drifter, which is not in my top three. One of the things that I think this album and so much of, I would say, pre-2000 hip-hop before MPC and... Akai and Rolling Drum Machines became really widespread in production was mm-hmm. using distinct drum beats and distinct percussion beats for your songs. And I honestly mm-hmm. can't get enough of the mixture of the Eagles, those shoes, and the bands up on Crickle Creek for the, um, for the uh, drum pattern for that. It just grooves along the pattern so well. MCA rides it really, really naturally. The rest of the guys actually ride it pretty well too. I don't love the guitars on it. I think, frankly, it comes in a bit gimmicky to be honest but just the drum pattern alone, I love on that. And I will also add, also on Hey Ladies, because there's a dozen samples on Hey Ladies, I want to point out Machine Gun by the Commodores. Oh, they're sampling uh, U2's, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Mysterious Ways, because it sounded like the guitar riff for that. And I listened to the riff and I thought, wait, not only is this not U2, U2 ripped off the Commodores, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, um, I know your feelings on this, but in my house... With the exception of my dad, we are anti-U2. One of them that I do want to talk about is The Sounds of Science, which I'm sure, as you are aware, interpolates five different Beatles songs. Sure. Uh, and Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, back in the USSR, 
And weirdly enough, when I'm 64, and I will simply say that I think most of them work. It also reminded me of how much The End and Sgt. Pepper sound weirdly alike at certain points. I will say the When I'm 64, it, it doesn't work for me at all. The bass line is tuned down and it, it's weirdly in the mix and I don't love it. I don't want to be mean about this, but I had a really intense Beatles face to the point where now if you put on a song, nine times out of ten, after the first note, I can tell you what song it is and also who sang it, which is problematic for me in the least um there's a reason two songs are the same group and in very close time periods sound the same there's a reason i'm aware i'm aware <laughs> it's the same band and i feel like especially in the 60s it was i'm not gonna say it's more acceptable but i think it was more of like a slap on the wrist oh don't do it again whereas when uh, the like one of the problems with paul's boutique that we talk about is like there's so much sampling that if you don't get permission you're gonna be hit with lawsuits they actually happened on licensed ill they were gonna sample um it was black back and black and i kept asking 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 and every single time they're like no uh for a song like that, i think it was rock hard which is well I that's a song uh Remember how they were juvenile? Yes. Think about the song title. Anyway. <laughs> point made. They're terrible. I, I would love to be friends with BC Boys at any point except for License to Ill Era because they would just look at me and be like, you're a woman. <laughs> I would have been like, I hate being here. You're not wrong. Um, I don't think anyone wants to be there. Um, yeah, sorry. The, the last thing I did want to comment on before we can talk about anything else. God. We, we talked about this earlier. Um, uh -huh. Are we both in agreement that Five Piece Chicken Dinner is the worst song on this album? <laughs> it's so bad. I will say the one redeeming factor about this song, song, in quotes, um, you got to hear Ad Rock's attempt at a Southern accent that is just such, has such a thick, New York accent still in it. <laughs> and I heard it and I was like, Adam, you were supposed to be the actor of this group. It, it is the most bizarre Southern accent I've ever heard. It's like half stereotype, half Manhattan accent. It's bad. This is the worst thing ever. It's like 26 seconds of torture. Do you want to hop into the top three for right now? Okay. So my top three from the bottom. So number three is A Year and a Day. Number two is Hey Ladies. Number one is Shake Your Rump. I'm going to give an honorable mention to, I have two. I have Eggman, which I've previously expressed my love for Eggman and all things egg. Um, and I have Shod Rock. And we didn't talk about any of those songs. If you'd allow me a little bit of time to quickly. I'll start, I'll start with Shod Rock because it has a quote from, our, from Love of Our Lives, Mike D. We need one of those like quarter jars and has like Mike D, per, uh, what you call it, Mike D mentions. And every name time. drop. It's a Mike D name drop. He's just really in on this album, man. So this is a quote directly from Mike D in BC Boyd's book. Allegedly, a very long time ago, there were these three Jewish dudes who would not bow down to a golden idol in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the new king of Babylon. He was super pissed, and a lot of people got jealous of the three dudes, so the king threw them into a fiery furnace. They were like, fuck it, go ahead and throw us into a fiery furnace. God will make this right. We don't care about your bullshitty golden statue, and besides, we prefer the warm weather anyways. 
When the king looked upon them in the fire, he saw that they were not only still alive, but they were singing songs and a fourth band member had joined them amongst the flames. None other than Jesus Christ himself. The king, being a total star fucker, was like, get those dudes out of the fiery furnace. The lyrics of the song, it mixes being found uh, with your religious attitudes in a good way. This isn't very preachy. This is, after all, it's Beastie Boys. Um, it's mixing those religious attitudes and being found with them with the realities of living in L.A. and the material world. So it's like, yeah, my life's really good, but I'm also, insert religious attitude here. At the very end of each chorus, they say Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and it's assigned to each Beastie Boy. Shadrach goes to Adrock, probably because... It sounds very similar. Shad Rock, Ad Rock. Meshach goes to Mike D. So both starts with M. And there's like a similarity between Michael, which means who is like God, and Meshach from Misha Aku, who is what Aku is. I don't know what that means, but they're very similar. I think Meshach is like a version of the Hebrew version of Michael. And Abednego is MCA, because MCA is short for MC Adam Yauk. Adam and Abednego both start with A. Hey, ladies, I did actually mention it's very 70s. Really, what I want to talk about with this is just, they've never played it live, and I'm really sad about that because I think it'd be so good live, and they just didn't do it, and I don't know why. They went on tour in the 90s with L7 and House of Pain, I think, and L7 every night was like, please play Hey, Ladies, please play Hey, Ladies, and they were like, no. Ours are similar. Uh, okay. My honorable mention goes to Eggman. If for no other reason, <laughs> then the entirety of the third verse... And somehow they make both a Jaws and Psycho scores from Bernard Herrmann and John Williams work. That's magic to me. So my proper top three. Um, one is one, my number three is one that you didn't actually mention, which is, uh, which is three minute rule. Did I mention anything notes wise on that? Oh, Mike's horny. <laughs> okay, but yes, yes. <laughs> I but, said, but like. But here's, my reason for three minute rule is twofold. One, it's the most streamlined out of any song on this freaking record because it's literally just a Sly and the Family sample stone, and it's a great sample. It flows off the beat really well. The production is solid, and it's the only song on the record where all three MCs, maybe not at the top of their game, but they all get a chance to actually flex as rappers. And I've been, honestly, I was dying for that the entire time just during, you know, Ad-Rock and Mike D do their own thing, MCA being an actual MC. And then we get the three-minute rule, and suddenly it's a freaking, you know, Beastie Boys cipher. And I was like, okay, all three of them sound good. The production is solid. It's a nice, simple hip-hop song on this, and it works really solid for me. Number two is Hey Ladies, which should frankly be a party sample by now, and I don't know why it isn't. Because they didn't play it live. Because they didn't play it live, yeah. Again, the Roger Trotman sample, the Commodore sample, the, um, the Ballroom Blitz edit in there, which is, we, we didn't go into that too much, but like there's a Ramon sample later on that I don't think works very well. There's a couple of punk references in there that I think are just kind of shoved in there. This, mm -hmm. the, uh, the Blitzkrieg Bop one is one of the ones that really stands out to me in terms of just vocal sampling and putting, you know, flexes into the rhymes. So I can, I can appreciate that. And again, it's fun. It's vibrant. They all sound like they're having a genuinely good time. And it's one of the most consistent songs that I've heard on the record. My number one, it's weird. The more I thought about this, the more this shouldn't be my number one. But oh, no. it's one that I just, I kind of can't stop thinking about it. And it's Johnny Royale. That is a good song. I will give you props to that. Do you know the story behind Johnny Royale? Because I, yeah, I do. I know the story that I read in the lyrics, but I don't know if that's the real story. So if you want to go ahead. 
Um, I, I didn't read the lyrics because I don't actually have this album on me. I listened to it on YouTube and I just did not look up what it means. So it's about, it's actually about a real guy that love of our life, beautiful love of the podcast, Michael Diamond knew who hung out basically on his apartment building stoop who was homeless and his roommate sean karasov who was also known as the captain was part of their road crew nicknamed him johnny royale mike allegedly gave him his def jam jacket which really pissed off russell simmons because he's like why did you give a piece of promotional like why did you and mike was like that's good publicity. People see it. Um, but the whole story, Johnny Rail, is that uh, they made up this background for this homeless man who they thought he was a famous rockabilly star who eventually became a drunk and an addict. And so now he lives in a men's shelter and he washes windows. And, but the good thing, like the thing about him that's most important is like, even though he's homeless and he, he has these addictions and he doesn't really seem like his life is together, he, his life is just as important as like the people on Wall Street or the people just walking down the street who are going to their apartments to work or anything like that. Like that every life is still important, which is very mature of them. And see, that's the one thing that Johnny Raya has against it is that for a song, for a song of this kind of storytelling, I wish it wasn't so bombastic and in your face, even though I get that's what the beasties do. They're not, you know, subtle. They don't generally go darker. Well, generally wait speaking. till you get to Hello Nasty. <laughs> there are exceptions. There are, there are certainly exceptions. But generally speaking, that's not what they do. And so the reason that I love Johnny Royale so much is because it's, it's really the one song on this record that feels like the beasties trying to tap into legitimate storytelling. And mm -hmm. maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Like like you said, it's it's partially based on their friend. It's a fictionalized story of their friend. But I like that it's a story. And I could go through the lyrics and be like, oh, it's this guy who, you know, he may or may not have been this country icon. Now he's fallen in hard times. They they actually dive into the lyrics to actually give him a bit of heft and a bit of, you know, emotional connection to the song. As far as the samples go, the David Bromberg Sharon sample with the guitars in there is really damn catchy. I really love it in there. The uh, the Paul McCartney sample works really well. The uh, the DJ Grand Wizard stuff works well. I mean, they sample themselves on it for Pete's sake with uh, the Your Right to Party reference at the end, which is, real realistically, it's not all that great, but I love hearing it as just like a fan of the music. So yeah. again, it, it kind of goes back to what I say about Paul's Boutique, which is that maybe they're not necessarily the smartest, but I could get in tune with this song. And I respect mm -hmm. it for trying to do something that the rest of the album really was not concerned with, but they were like, no, we're going to tell a story in a song for once. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy into this. I will say they do that. Uh, this is not the first time they did that where they did storytelling songs. Um, I think their best example is Paul Revere where they did a fictionalized, we met because we're Western outlaws. And that's how you get us now. But they also did it on uh, the opening track to Listen to Ill, which is uh, Rhyming and Stealing. Personally, I really like that because they're like, we're pirates. <laughs> that's our story. We're pirates do rap. So that's that's a feature that they really like to do, at least in these early albums. They like they like doing the storytelling stuff. And I mean, maybe it's a cultural thing for them. Maybe it's just, well, no, we want to have some fun with this. Because, I mean, you listen, you're like, okay, well, you're clearly not pirates. You're not outlaws. This guy's story is probably not that. He's probably just a random dude who you just see on your stoop every day. Um, 
So let's have fun with it. Like to have the imagination to it and give you something to really think about. And I think the importance of that song is that key message of everyone's life is just important, even if it's not the same as yours. So maybe this song, despite all the punkness of it, as someone, it made someone realize, oh, I need to actually care. It's the Beastie Boys showing empathy. And I can respect that, especially when you have production this diverse to back it up and lyrics that mm -hmm. are frankly giving a damn about trying to give that story some actual heft so that the listeners, even if your delivery isn't necessarily on point, that you can allow them to connect with that on some level. And so I've always respected that. Uh, so with that being said, uh, we're going to give this out of five. Five slaps. Actually, I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of five slaps because I really love this album. I think this is a good album. I think if you want to introduce people to Beastie Boys, this might not be the album you should start with just because it's so dense of an album. They might get lost or they might be turned off by some of the lyrics. Um, it's a good album, though. Like, it's, I think if you want to take some of the next step, if they're like, okay, well, I listen to, you know, the rap stars that everybody listens to that's very uh, mainstream popular these days, but I want to listen to something else, too, that's maybe not as in the spotlight currently. I think this is a good album to show, start with that level. Uh, yeah, honestly, I, I think that's totally legit. I would add, I'm sure that if we cover a Beastie Boys album again, which I'm sure we're going to, the Beastie Boys' place in hip-hop is complex, to say the least. They're a very unique group in the echelon. You know, you, you tie back sort of the history of the hip-hop, especially if you're looking at, you know, the late 80s and the early 90s. And the Beastie Boys have clearly had their place in that, and I will always respect that and always have love for that. Paul's Boutique is maybe not the beacon of that, but I think it's as good a reason as you can get for why we remember the Beastie Boys for who they are. At the time, it was revolutionary, and even now, there's a reason why so many artists beyond hip-hop are looking to this record as sort of an example for how to construct things from samples and make something great within your field while adhering to your artist's sensibilities and allowing them to evolve creatively. I don't think, I don't think from, again, from a lyrical perspective, it doesn't necessarily do it for me. Mm -hmm. From the performance aspect, it does have some issues. I Again, the, the way that they perform is, if you're a hip-hop head, if you're not a hip-hop head, it's somewhere in the middle that isn't quite the easiest thing to understand for everyone. And yet, in a weird sense, it also is because of the lyricism. So that adds to the complexity in there. For me, this is easily a four out of five. It's significant enough. It's re-listenable enough. I mean, I listened to the damn thing three times just for this. And in that you sense- trooper. And, and I mean, look, in that sense, I found a lot to like, especially in the production, especially in some of the song structure, even with, you know, some of the moments that I didn't quite love, even with some of the choices that I didn't quite love, it never took away from what I knew and loved the Beastie Boys as. So thank you guys so much for tuning into the proper episode one of 1-800-RU-SLAPPING. If you have any albums for us, I'm sure we'll have, we have the email set up, correct? We do have the email set up. So I'm going to cut it in for a second here. Yes, so if you either you we've recommended you to listen to this so you can give us feedback or you've come across this because i know with the podcast app of my choice i was curious and i searched us and we do come up on that and we're i think we're pretty much everywhere at this point except apple music which that might take a while if ever but however you heard of us however you listened um we always welcome feedback and album suggestions. So if you want to tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, what you'd like us to include, any albums you'd like us to cover, hear our thoughts on, you can email us at podcast at gmails.com. That is 
podcast. So R-U-S-L-A-P-P-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. We're going to come back and you can hear from us in about two weeks. Um, Two weeks, yeah. Well, this is going to be a uh, bi-weekly, I think is the term. I always mix that up. Twice a month podcast. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> <Potentially>, yes. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So, right. well, once again, thank you guys so much. Go subscribe to the podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, my name is Brandon King. My name is Rachel Fisher. And. <laughs> <laughs>